All right, good morning. Welcome. Come on in. Happy Labor Day weekend. If you're watching online or here, uh, my name is Mark. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I look forward to meeting you at some point. I get to serve as one of the staff elders here at the church. And in a moment, I'm going to introduce our guest speaker. But before I do that, I need to tell you that I recently found myself standing in front of our refrigerator with the door open, and I couldn't remember why I was there. You ever had that experience? Why am I here? I know I set out to get something important from this refrigerator, and I can't remember what it is. And the reality is we can be forgetful about things, can't we? And we can be forgetful about small things, and we can be forgetful about big things. So here we are. It's Sunday morning, and we're in church, or we're watching online. Why are we here? Why does the church exist? Why does this church exist? This is a big thing that we don't want to forget. And so over the next uh, five weeks, we'll be doing a series called Our Vision. And the goal of this series is to explain our vision as a church. So that's why this cool slide from uh, last Easter, this, this vision of this community. God creates local churches like ours to be a community, a family, and not just any community, because there's a lot of groups of people, a lot of communities in the world, but the churches intend to be a community that's focused in three directions. Up to God in worship, in to, with one another in fellowship, and out to the world in mission. And so our vision as a church is to be a community that exalts up, displays together in and declares out the gospel of Jesus Christ for the glory of God. So we're going to be unpacking what that means and what that looks like for us as a congregation over the next five weeks, starting next week. So if you're new to the church, this will be a great opportunity to, to find out a little more about what we're about. And if you've been here for a while, this can be a great refresher to stir your heart for the beautiful community that God is creating with Christ as the cornerstone that's called the church. I want to encourage you to prepare for the next three sermons by reading Acts 2. Each of the next three weeks will be in Acts chapter 2. Today, we have a treat. Dr. Scott Redd is here to speak this morning. He's the president of the Tyson's Corner campus of Reformed uh, Theological Seminary, and he's also a professor of the Old Testament there. So Scott is a really smart guy. He's also... Uh, a, a man who loves his wife and uh, Jennifer and their five daughters. Uh, three of them are here with us this morning. Scott and Jennifer are members at Fourth Presbyterian Church in Bethesda. And Scott has just been a friend for a number of years, uh, who's both spoken here, but also really served our church through the wonderful seminary that's there. So currently, uh, Christo and uh, Kenneth Moresco, Jeff Sawyer are all taking classes there. And over the years, a number of different people have taken classes. And I really want to encourage you, our RTS is, is unique in the way that as a, as a seminary, as a theological education uh, uh, institute, it seeks to come alongside churches and serve in, and assist in, in any way possible. And so you don't need to be 
uh, sort of aspiring to be a pastor to go and take classes there and benefit from what they're offering. And I'll tell you, on my recent sabbatical, I watched the videos from one of the church history classes that are available online, and they were enormously encouraging and, and helpful to me. So if you're interested in learning more about RTS, Scott will be at a table in the lobby after the service. This morning, he's preaching from Psalm 110. As we finish the series in the Gospel of Mark, Psalm 110 came up. As we get to Acts chapter 2, it'll come up again there. And Scott has put this message together to serve us this morning. So please welcome him as he comes. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Well, good morning, Redeeming Grace Church. It's an honor, an honor to be with you all today. <clears throat> Um, I return all of the praise. Thank you, Mark, for that introduction. Uh, RTS, Reformed Theological Seminary, where I serve, has been deeply uh, ministered to by Redeeming Grace Fairfax, the way that you all have uh, participated in the gospel ministry in Northern Virginia, uh, the way that you have uh, cared for your ministers, uh, and many of them I've gotten to know very closely as, as students and as colleagues at RTS, and I just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you from Reformed Theological Seminary uh, for the deep encouragement and true edification that we have because of this church's ministry of the gospel and collaboration in that ministry in Northern Virginia. So it is truly an honor and a joy to be back with you this morning. We're going to be talking about um, the Psalter or the Psalms, <clears throat> one of my, <clears throat> excuse me, one of my um, uh, daughters reminded me recently that most people don't know what the word psalter means, so I should, I should define it, the psalter, that is the psalms. Um, and we're going to talk about a particular one this morning, that is Psalm 110, which is an interesting psalm. I think we're going to dive into it and find that while it's a well-known psalm, it's not one that's necessarily easy to understand. Okay. If, if Psalm 23 is the most well-known of the Psalms, I mean, so well-known that it's, it's made its way into pop culture, right? I mean, the, one of the laziest ways for a, a director of a movie to tell you that you're at a funeral, right, is to have somebody read Psalm 23. Okay, that's just a cultural icon for us. But what's interesting for those of us who are in the ministry and church and body of Christ, those who, like you, you've just finished a series on the Gospel of Mark, and you've seen how Jesus unveils himself to the world and reveals himself as God's logos, as his king, as God, excuse me, as, as humanity's king, as, as God's son, as, as Jesus reveals himself, he does it in a way that is very Old Testament focused. Okay, he does it in a way where he says, the Old Testament has spoken to me, and I want to show you how I am the revelation of it. Okay, it's actually kind of, um, it's kind of job security for people like me who teach Old Testament, that as soon as our risen Lord rises from the dead, go read Luke 24, what does he want to talk about? He wants to talk about how the Old Testament is a witness to and an anticipation of him, his work, his life, his death, and his ascension to the heavenly throne. What's interesting is that when Jesus wants to use the Psalms to talk about who he is, both Jesus and his apostles most commonly use Psalm 110. 
Psalm 110 is their favorite psalm to go back to, to talk about who Jesus is and who we are in him. So it's an important psalm, and as we dive into it today, I want us to be mindful of how it points us to Jesus. So our text this morning is Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment against among the nations filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we open up uh, your word today, we thank you that you give it to us, that we do not need to ascend mountains to find you, that we don't need to swim to the bottom of the seas to encounter you, but you have given us yourself here in your word. So I pray, Lord, just as the Spirit has inspired this text, that we might have it and rely on it and turn to it and lean on it. I pray, Lord, that your Spirit would attend to the preaching of your text, that your Spirit would attend to the hearing of your word. Dear Lord, draw our eyes to you that we would see the one to whom the Spirit testifies, that is Jesus Christ, and that we would see him afresh and anew and that our hearts would be made glad because of it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, as I mentioned, if Psalm 23 is the most memorized or well-known of the Psalter, Psalm 110 is the most cited in the New Testament. We see Jesus citing it regularly. It's actually interesting if we look at how he uses it in Matthew 22, and we'll come back to it. He really focuses on the fact that it says, the Lord said to my Lord. In verse 1, that's, that's for Jesus one of the most important aspects of this psalm. But if we go on, as, as you will be reading and studying over the next three weeks, to Acts 2, at the time of Pentecost, as, as the church is being formed and given the Spirit, we find Peter there in Acts 2 preaching, and he also uses Psalm 110, but he focuses much more on the fact that this, this person, this individual who's being addressed in Psalm 110, this king, has been placed at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. He says that's, that's where Jesus is now. He's been placed at the right hand of God the Father. As a matter of fact, for the apostles, that actually, that part is the most important part of this psalm. The fact that Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. But that's not it. If we, that's not all. If we move on to Hebrews, uh, the whole letter to the Hebrews, and we look at chapters of Hebrews, like chapter 5, 6, and 7, here we have the author of Hebrews really reflecting on Psalm 110 and drawing our attention to it, particularly to this interesting part of where it talks about this, this priest named Melchizedek and how Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. In many ways, the letter to the Hebrews is a long expositional sermon on Psalm 110. But for him, it's this Melchizedek character. Who's this character that Jesus is called to be a priest in the order of? You see, for Jesus and his apostles, Psalm 110 is the most 
useful, the most relevant psalm in articulating the gospel message. And so I think it's important for us to reflect on it and to consider what it means and what it tells us about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, why, why do you think it's so cited? Why, why this one and not Psalm 1 or Psalm 23 or, or Psalm 119, after all? It's got the most material. Why isn't that the most cited of the Psalms? And I think it comes down to this. Psalm 110, perhaps more than any other psalm, really speaks to that paradoxical enigma that is the whole of the Hebrew Bible. You see, the, the Hebrew Bible speaks to a, a plan of salvation, a design by God to save the earth that is really even greater than the Hebrew Bible itself can account for. The, the Hebrew Bible makes promises throughout its text, whether we're talking about Moses or the prophets or the Psalms or Proverbs or Job's or Ecclesiastes, it makes these promises that the Hebrew Bible itself can't bear up. It can't hold up under the weight of its own promises. I mean, just a quick survey of the Hebrew Bible. Let's go back to the major events of God's plan of salvation. The fact that God is the one who spins the whole cosmos into creation as this grand temple or palace to his glory. And, and as if we, you know, so that we don't miss it, what does he do? He puts his image in the temple and says, there, now you go fill the whole earth and subdue it. Fill it with little images of me so that when I look at creation, I see all of the cosmos reflecting back my glory. There's this cosmic plan that God has for the earth, and yet the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament itself, doesn't actually show us that come into fruition. We continue on to the calling of Abraham in Genesis 12, and we see that Abraham is promised to not just be a blessing to Israel, to not just be a blessing to Judah, but to be a blessing to all of the families of the earth. It's cosmic. It's global in, in focus. We move on to the book of Deuteronomy. I could keep going and going, but in the book of Deuteronomy, it's interesting, isn't it, that Moses is given a plan for how Israel is to operate within the land, the promised land, and that's what we mostly think of when we think about you know, the Pentateuch. It's just about the promised land being given to Israel. But have you noticed that in Deuteronomy, there are multiple mandates and lessons given to Moses on how to expand the influence of Israel over the face of the earth through diplomacy and trade? I think we missed that. Moses told the Israelites, your job is not to just stay here. It was always to expand over the face of the earth. This story continues and continues and it builds and it builds momentum until finally we get to the end and you might think now we're going to get the answer. Now we're going to see this cosmic plan of God for the whole world worked out. And yet, somewhat unexpectedly, the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament ends not with a bang, but with a whimper. Or better yet, not, not just a whimper, a, a whisper of a lamenting prayer. You ever notice the last thing that happens in the land of Israel, in the Old Testament, the last thing that happens, go to the end of the book of Nehemiah, and what do you have? You have Nehemiah there. He's tried to bring about a renewal. He's tried, to, he's tried to reinstall Israel in the way that God had promised them through, through the prophets, where you know, streams would be flowing in the desert. There would be a cosmic temple that filled the earth with living waters. Uh, the, the, the lion would lie down with the lamb, and Nehemiah has this plan ahead of him. He knows the promises that have been made 
And yet they keep stumbling and failing and falling. And finally, the Old Testament ends with Nehemiah alone saying, Lord, don't forget about us. That's it. If you look at the end of the book of Nehemiah, the last thing that's said in the Old Testament is, Lord, remember me for good. That's what he's saying. Don't forget about us. This is a play on a stage. You can imagine uh, the old the Bible being a whole play, the Old Testament being the first act, you know, the, the New Testament being the second act. The first act would end before the intermission with a black stage and a spotlight coming down on this one man who says, Lord, don't forget about us. And then the light would go out and the curtains would come together and we'd break for intermission of centuries long. <laughs> And depending on which gospel you're reading, the, the curtain would open again. And if you were reading Mark, you know, you'd dive into the gospel story in one way. You'd, you'd have John the Baptist coming out into the desert, right? Or, or maybe you'd open with some shepherds on the side of a field and the skies opening up with angels crying out. But that would be part two. Part one ends with a whimper. I don't know that any psalm gets to the unanswered promises of the Old Testament more than Psalm 110. Perhaps nowhere else are the promises of the Lord so grand, so future-looking, and perhaps nowhere else do we feel that lack, that unfulfillment that the Old Testament leaves us with as we move into the intermission. Well, if you remember this, I want to walk through the Psalm 110 and talk about how it develops this anticipation, okay? So I want to walk through, and as we do, let me just go ahead and I'll tell you on the front end what we're going to see. We're going to see that this individual, this, this king that the psalmist is talking about, and the psalmist is identified as David, and we should say, by the way, in Matthew 22, Jesus affirms this. He does say, yes, this is David speaking. This individual that David is talking about in the Psalms is a future king who will be, ready, point one, divinely appointed, point two, heavenly born, point three, mercifully present, and point four, globally just. He's going to be divinely appointed, heavenly born, mercifully present, and globally just. So let's talk about the divine appointment of this king. Notice how the psalm begins. It says, the Lord said to my Lord. Now in the English, the, the Hebrew here gets a little jumbled up. If you want to really translate this literally, this is actually the kind of language you usually find in the prophets. It doesn't happen in the psalms many times, but it does happen every once in a while. And this is the introduction of a prophetic um, uh, 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 oracle. And it really says something like this. The utterance of Adonai, okay, that first Lord, the Lord, Remember, see it has little capitals in your ESV. And that's because it's actually the divine name. It's not a noun, it's a proper noun. The utterance of Adonai, of yod heh vav the Tetragrammaton, the divine name, the utterance of the Lord, Adonai, said to, and then this is a noun, my Lord, okay, my master. This is the utterance of the Lord God to my master. And so the psalm opens with this weird you know, the action of David, a father, a king, in fact, maybe the greatest king of the Old Testament period, referring to this person who he calls my Lord, my master. This is the point that Jesus brings up with those who are questioning him. They're saying, how can you say that you're greater than David? And he goes, haven't you read Psalm 110? 
What does David say about the Messiah that is to come? He calls him my master. Why would a son or father call his son my master? How could you do that? He might say, the Lord said to my descendant, the Lord said to my son, the Lord said to my follower or something like that, but he doesn't. David calls his son, that is the one who will descend from him, my Lord. And Jesus says, why could that be? That's because this king who's being described in Psalm 110 is not merely a natural born son. The king is that, but he's not merely that. This king is divinely appointed by God for this role. He is placed in the locus of divine power at the right hand of God. You see, in this prophetic utterance, David acknowledges that there is a son who will be greater than his father. David will have a child who will be greater than the one who beget him. Now notice the Lord God is the agent here in all of this. The Lord God is the one who's active doing the work. This king, right, is told to come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay? This king is depicted as kind of an observer who's sitting back while God establishes his kingdom for him over the face of the earth. And notice, by the way, that the, the, the kingdom is established out of Zion. And Zion is, of course, historically that, that old place, um, which is the mountain around which the temple is built and, Israel, and, and Jerusalem is established. But over the course of the Old Testament, Zion becomes more than just that. It's not just this location geographically, but it becomes a kind of eschatological location. It's used by the prophets and by the Psalms to mean the place out of which God's deliverance comes. You see, this king will establish and have his kingdom established over the face of the earth by God. God will be the agent who will do it, but it will come out of Zion. That is, it will come out of the place of God's authority. He is appointing this kingdom. He is the one who's establishing this king. Yes, as Psalm 2 says, the nations will rage, right? The nations will reject him, but it doesn't matter. His success is uh, a definite thing. His, his success is certain because it is divinely appointed and it cannot fail. So this king is divinely appointed, but he's not just that. He's also heavenly born. That brings us to verse three. He's heavenly born. Now, I have to admit, this is probably the hardest verse in Psalm 110. I say that as an Old Testament guy, as a person reading it in the Hebrew. This is a difficult passage. Um, all you have to do is compare your different English translations, and you can see how the King James, the NIV, and the, N and the ESV deal with this verse. It's kind of a tough one. It's a difficult one to work around. Um, even in your ESV, you'll have notes that will say things like, the text here is uncertain, <laughs> or translators disagree on how to do this one. And it's a good reminder to us, because we do need to be reminded that the Bible did not descend out of heaven in English. <laughs> okay, thank God it didn't. It, it came to us organically through real people writing in real human language. And we are reading here ancient poetry, and lest we forget, we have verses like Psalm 110, verse 3. This is a difficult passage. So without getting all into the complications of it, I do want to point out what we do know that it's saying here. Notice what he says. He's talking about this king's kingdom being established out of Zion, and he points out that the followers of this kingdom will freely rise up 
and rally to his support. To use Jesus' language, when this king shepherd rises up, the sheep will hear his voice and rally to his support. And that this is an illustration of the fact that he has been consecrated by God from birth to do this work. And you might say, well, where do you get that here? Well, when we look at our ESV, you notice there's this language of the rosy dawn or the womb of morning, okay? The, the beginning of morning, uh, out of it comes this dew, and right, we can imagine how those things go together. If you woke up this morning, it was a crisp morning, I got up a little early and I went outside and there was dew in my backyard, right? And what does that tell you? That there was a time of darkness, there was a time of night, and that time of night has now become a, a time of light, of, of, of exposure. There's now light out there on the countryside. But not only is there light, there's something else. There's this layer of dew. And you see, this king is going to be established over the face of the earth. The darkness will be washed away by light. But when the light comes up, surprise, his kingdom will be over the face of the earth like dew. This is all talking about the day of his power. How will the day of his power dawn? It will dawn like a morning. And the sky is like the womb. And he is begotten. That's actually a way of translating this line in the Hebrew. From the womb of the dawn, I have begotten you like dew. And I think that actually, I like that translation because it fits with this dawning of the day of power. The womb of morning begets the dew of his kingdom. This is poetry. For those of you who are English majors out there, you're like, yeah, I get this. This is how poetry works. But this is this vivid imagery of hope and light and expansion. The term that's used there for youth could also be translated infancy. This isn't talking about adolescence. This is talking about being a little bitty baby. It says the dew of your infanthood is yours. That would be the way to translate it. And if we, if we go with the ESV construction. And that reminds us that no matter how we read this, the king's birth and his early infancy are ordained and given to him by God. They are ordained and given to him by God because from birth he is sanctified for this work. This isn't something, he wasn't the greatest fighter in the, in the, in the world. He, bought, he won the battle, and so the Lord then gave him the award. It's not that. He is consecrated for this work from the very beginning of his life. You see, he's divinely appointed, but he is also heavenly born. But not only that, he is mercifully present. If I, if I could have said this making up a word, I would have said he is priestly present, but that's not a word, priestly, so I had to go with mercifully. He is mercifully present on this earth, and this is explained in verse 4, so let's take a look at verse 4. Notice that this king is divinely appointed, he's heavenly born, but he's also mercifully present. Now to understand verse 4, we have to understand the different offices that we find in the Old Testament. And they're usually delineated in this kind of trifold office, the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet declares the word of God. He enforces the word of God. The king is the one who builds things. That's the job of the king, to build stuff and to lead out in battle. But then you also have this office of a priest. 
The priest is an interesting office. The priest is more of the democratic office. It's the office of the people who would have been out amongst the people. They would have known the family members. They would have been going house to house and receiving tithes and praying for the people. And when you came to the temple to meet with God, when you came to enter into his sanctuary, you would come and you would deliver that sacrifice to a priest. And the priest would come between you and God. And he would put the sacrifice down on the altar and he would offer a prayer on your behalf. You see, if the king is the one who is up there in his palace leading his building campaigns and his battles, the priest is the one who is down amongst the people interceding on their behalf. You see, the king governs, he judges cases, and he leads in building projects and battles, but the king is not the priest in the Israelite social order. So how does the psalmist make sense of this? Well, he does it by telling the story that we find in Genesis 14, an old story that Israelites would have been aware of, about this character of Melchizedek. Melchizedek is this interesting character who shows up in this early story about Abraham. It's kind of, he sort of steps out of the, the dust or the shade of history, and he plays a little part in this one story in Genesis 14, and then he kind of steps back again. The story is an interesting one, and it's one that's been fascinating followers of God ever since they received it by the hands of Moses, right? Uh, we can go back and find early Jewish interpretations of this passage, and everyone's puzzling over who Melchizedek is. Here's how he's described in Genesis 14. Abram has just come into the valley and he's, he's, he's living in the valley and he's making the most of it with his, with his uh, relative Lot. And then there's this marauding king who comes through the valley and kidnaps Lot and steals everyone's stuff. And Abram goes out and he conquers this king and comes back with Lot rescued and with the spoils taken back. And in the middle of this story, this character named Melchizedek, who's, called to be, who's said to be the king of the town of Salem, which is likely identified with Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem later. The town of Salem it has this king named Melchizedek, but he's also a priest. And when he comes out to meet Abram, do you know what Abram does? Abram gets down on his knees and gives him a tithe and then receives a blessing from him. And then Melchizedek kind of steps back away and we never hear anything about him again. Interesting character. He, you know, he's, he's demanding all kinds of speculations about who he is. But notice how the psalmist is using him here. The psalmist says, just like Melchizedek was a priest and a king, so will this new king, this one who is divinely appointed and heavenly born, so will he be a priest and a king. The author of Hebrews, when he talks about Melchizedek, he actually uses Melchizedek to explain why Jesus is our priest. However, he's not born in the tribe of Levi. That's probably not a question you've asked yourself about Jesus before, but it's something that Jesus' audience would have asked himself. They asked themselves about him. They would have said, wait a minute, you're saying he's our high priest, and yet he's not born in the tribe of Levi, so he can't be a priest. I thought all the priests were supposed to be from the tribe of Levi. And the author of Hebrews says, not only is he not of the tribe of Levi, he is from a greater tribe. He's from a greater line of priests, the ones that predate surpass and post-date the Aaronic priests of the Old Testament. 
The author of Hebrews even says, I think somewhat tongue-in-cheek, he says, don't you know that when Abram bowed down before Melchizedek and gave him tithes and received a blessing, Levi, your, your ancestor, was in his loins bowing down before Melchizedek as well. Don't you know Levi has already acknowledged the greater priesthood of Melchizedek? That's the kind of king and priest this king will be. You see, the story of Melchizedek is a story that begs a mysterious question in the Old Testament, but it's one that isn't answered by the Old Testament. Because this one anticipates a king who is also a priest. The same king who leads in battle is also, for Psalm 110, the king who knows us and intercedes for us and sympathizes with us like a priest. You see, Psalm 110 is making promises that the Old Testament itself can't bear up. How can such a future figure be hoped for? The author of Hebrews says, how can these things be? Have you considered Jesus? Maybe he's the kind of person who brings these contradictions, these paradoxes together. So this king who's being described in Psalm 110 is heavenly appointed. He's, 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 divinely, uh, he's divinely appointed, rather. He's heavenly born. He's mercifully present. But lastly, verses 5 through 7 tell us he is globally just. He's globally just. Now, the picture that the psalmist paints here is one of the nations being in chaos and rebellion. The nation's raging and someone needs to come and bring order. The weak are being oppressed. The poor are being exploited. How is it that there can be justice? This king will bring justice. And the way that he paints the picture of the justice that is coming is he uses a common image from ancient Near Eastern warfare. Many of the people listening to this would have seen great battles taking place where the evil, the wicked were destroyed by the righteous and the faithful, and they would have seen the battlefield with all of the bodies laid out, the tragic, terrible loss laid out on the battlefield. And here, the psalmist is saying, this king will come, and in like manner, he will bring justice to us against our enemies. And the enemies, those Assyrians, those Babylonians, those Persians, those Romans will be laid low in battle when this king comes because his people will have rallied to his support and his kingdom is a kingdom of justice. Now, like the God who has appointed him, this king is merciful. He's a priest. Priests are about mercy, but he's also just. You see, this gets at the tension that we find in the Old Testament. God is a God of justice, but he's also a God of mercy. If we look at Exodus chapter 33, this is where Moses goes to meet God on the mountain. And remember God, he says, God, I want to see you. And God says, you can't see me. You can only see the backside of my goodness. That's actually literally what it says. You can see the backside of my goodness as I pass before you and you're placed in the rock. This is where our hymn, Rock of Ages, comes from. As you're placed in the rock, I'll pass before you. And as the Lord passes before him, the Lord sings a song about himself. Do you remember what he says in the song? He says, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and compassionate. Okay, he loves to show mercy. He loves to show compassion. 
But he doesn't stop there. What does he say next? But who will by no means acquit, acquit the guilty, but will bring justice to them, to their third and their fourth generations. You see, God, when he has to kind of sum up who his character is, he says, I am merciful and I am just. Now, logically, if you think about it, it's interesting that he starts with mercy because how can you have mercy if you haven't already introduced the idea of justice, right? We Usually we say, if you're going to be merciful, you have to say, what are you being merciful from? But God doesn't start with justice. He starts with mercy. I think that tells us something about him. He leads with his mercy and his compassion. But he says, don't forget, I am a God of justice. And the tension between these two attributes of God, his perfect mercy and his perfect justice, only increases throughout the course of the Old Testament. You can read the Old Testament and ask yourself over and over again, where is God's mercy? Where is his mercy? His people repent. They're lowly. They're downtrodden. They're treated as if they're just another nation out there in the world. They're afflicted by Babylonians and Canaanites and Philistines and Assyrians and Persians and Greeks. Everywhere they turn, where is the mercy, Lord? We could also ask the question, where is the justice? Even your people themselves keep failing over and over and over again. Every time you bless them, they turn away from you. Even as you're giving them their law, after taking them out of Egypt, what happens down at the foot of the mountain? They're already worshiping graven images. Where's the justice, Lord? When will you finally bring to bear your perfectly holy and just character? When will you finally say that enough is enough? On Psalm 110, we're, dis, we're, we're introduced to a future king who will be a priest of mercy like Melchizedek, but will also be an arbiter of justice, putting down those who reject him. How can both of these things be? And I would argue that, again, the Old Testament cannot stand up under the weight of its own promises. It's not until we come to the cross of Jesus Christ on Calvary that we can see how God's mercy and his justice can be worked out together in the world for his people. On the cross, we find out that our conquering king would also be a self-giving priest. On the cross of Jesus, we find out that God's justice is global, but his great act of justice that happens on the cross actually opens up the path for our mercy. Jesus takes on himself on the cross the judgment of his people. And in the most lopsided exchange in the history of human contracts, he gets our justice and our judgment. And you know what we get? We get his inheritance that the Father has given him. We get everlasting life. See, Jesus makes himself the object of the divine judgment that we all deserve so that we can receive his mercy, his grace, his abundant life. He comes in justice, and through his merciful self-giving on the cross, he now fills the world with his body, right? His body that has been given in judgment and now is received in grace those who have justly died with Christ on the cross. He gives us, he gives the world his body that expands over the face of the earth. He doesn't fill the earth with corpses. He fills the earth with his risen body. That is new creation. That is his temple. That is his church. 
I like how the Anglican theologian J.I. Packer says it. He says this, in Psalm 110, God sets his Messiah at his right hand as a king and a priest. As a king to see all his enemies under his feet and as a priest to serve God and channel God's grace forever. Though personally the Messiah may be out fighting, positionally he is always sitting at the Lord's right hand. Or perhaps we could turn to the Apostle Paul who makes a similar point in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23. And actually the pastor who, who pointed me to this was uh, the late Tim Keller who had learned it himself from his own teacher. Um, oh, I'm forgetting his name. <laughs> his, Ed Clowney. He got it from Ed Clowney. Apologies for that. Um, he got it from Ed Clowney, who gave it to him, and then he pointed it out uh, and, and, and made, made note of it for me, that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 through 23, um, God, the, Paul is writing about the hope that God has worked out for us in Christ. And he says this, this is the hope that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. You see the citation of Psalm 110 there. That's where he's getting it from. God has put this king at his right hand in heavenly places above all other authorities, above all other nations, all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, right? We see Psalm 110 there. His kingdom has gone out like the dew on the earth from Zion. And he puts all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things the church, right? He's made his enemies his footstool. So what is he filling the body with, the world with now? He fills the body with his, the world with his church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. He fills the earth not with corpses, but with his resurrected body. That is the congregation of his people who are joined with him in his death by faith. I love that you're going to have a series on ecclesiology following this because it's so important to learn about who we are as the church and our grand calling that we have in Christ Jesus, whose body, in whose body we have been united. You see, the fulfillment that we find in the New Testament is more grand, it's more extravagant, and it's more expansive than even the promises of the Old Testament can make. All the promises of the Old Testament. God promises Israel uh, the, the promised land of, of Canaan. In the Old Testament, that's their hope. But in the New Testament, what are they given? They're given the whole world. In the Old Testament, he conquers their enemies like the Canaanites and the Philistines and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But who does he conquer in the New Testament? In the New Testament, he conquers these spiritual and mortal enemies of Satan and sin and death. In the Old Testament... He promises a kingly priest in the order of Melchizedek. In the New Testament, we find that Christ himself is bearing the judgment that his people deserve so that he might provide them with an outpouring of mercy and peace. As I heard one person say, in the Old Testament, the God, you know, God promises his people $5,000. In the New Testament, he gives them a million. Would anyone say he didn't fulfill the promises of the Old Testament? No, it's always above and beyond and more extravagant than the promises that we find in the Old. And this is what he's offering you to. He's offering you this membership in his body, the king-priest body, the God who is just but is also merciful. 
Do you want to be a proponent of justice? You have to consider what that means for you. Are you complicit in injustice? Have you harbored thoughts? Have you kept your mouth shut when you should have spoken up? Have you joined in the crowd? Have you exploited those, even just in your thoughts, those who are weaker than you? Have you seen those who are made in the image of the holy God treated as if they are just means to your own self-interested ends? Are you interested in true justice? Most people realize that they have been implicated in injustice. So how do we respond? How do we respond to this implication? We love justice, and yet we realize that this love of justice implicates us. We serve a God of global justice, and yet we recognize if he is perfectly globally just, then we too must fall under the judgment that is coming. There's three ways we can respond to this. The first way is this. We can ignore justice, lest we be implicated by it. We cannot call things out for what they are, lest someone turn that mirror around on us. You can ignore justice. Number two, you could ignore your own complicity. You could call out for justice and ignore your complicity in it. You could become, as a result, a hypocrite. Or three, you could throw yourself on the mercy of the just judge. Confess the truth about yourself and your complicity. Acknowledge that your injustices must be answered in Christ and receive the mercy that he is offering you. You see, if you want to be a thoroughgoing proponent of justice, one who does it with integrity, then we have to recognize that it is Christ who has borne the justice on our behalf so that we can be proponents of justice. You see, that is what Christ is offering us. He's offering us God's justice being meted out on his head so that we can receive the mercy and the grace that we do not deserve, but that we are given by faith. That's what Christ is offering us. And he can make good on his offer because as Psalm 110 reminds us, he is divinely appointed, he's heavenly born, he's mercifully present, and he's globally just. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do lift up this time to you. I pray, Lord, that you would receive our reflections on your word in faith. Receive us in Christ. I pray, dear Lord, that as we do, you'd see, we would see our minds expanded to understand the things that you have taught us, that we'd find our hearts expanded so that we might rejoice and respond as the only way that it's appropriate with worship, and that we'd find our lives changed. We know that only your word can do this, empowered by your spirit, and so we throw ourselves on your mercy. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.